Hi, and welcome back to the Institute Performance Nutrition We Do Science podcast, and this is episode 125. And my guest today is Dr. Rob Morton. Hey, Rob, how are you doing? Good, how are you? I'm, I'm, I'm all right on this second take, having, <laughs> uh, having not quite got this right. You'd think after the, after the years that I've been doing this, I, uh, I'd be a little bit more polished. Let's hope this, uh, let's hope this chat goes <laughs> a little bit better. So... Um, there's all sorts of uh, things I want to get into in today's conversation, but let's kick this off with um, you telling us a little bit about yourself and where you're at and what and what you're up to. Sure. Yeah. I'm. Uh, yeah. So my name's Rob, and I I'm a former strength and conditioning coach, uh, turned sports scientist, uh, turned PhD student. So I, I just finished my PhD. I did it with Stu Phillips at McMaster, and. My thesis was all around resistance exercise and muscle hypertrophy. And we looked at a number of things there, but I uh, just finished that up in July. And now I'm a postdoc uh, and I, I work at the Population Health Research Institute, which is generally a, an epidemiological center. But I, my focus is genetic epidemiology now. So uh, I'm learning a lot about genetics, but um, I think my, my goal now is to try to figure out uh, what genes underpin muscle mass and what genes underpin the change in muscle mass we have with training. So uh, really excited to be here. Thank, thanks for having me on. No, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so excited to have you on for several reasons. And there's sort of a common theme throughout my podcast, as everyone knows that, you know, I'm, I'm sort of obsessed on the sort of pathological line of obsession over this whole concept of science and practice and so on. And um, part of that comes from the fact that you know, for many years, I was a personal trainer, and then I became a strength and conditioning coach, and then sort of dabbled in different areas, as one does, um, and um, then sort of took the jump into the more science side, you know, got a better handle on, you know, what, what evidence is that informs practice, um, good science, bad science, and um, that ended up being what I did my own my own doctorate in, but you and I share something in common here, which is that we were both S&C coaches and sort of worked in the real world um, before going down these paths. And in your case, you know, uh, 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 a lot of lab work and um, a lot of deep research into a topic that we're about to get into. But just quickly, um, because I, I always find this interesting, there's lots of great scientists out there in our field in sports science, sports nutrition, but they haven't necessarily had that experience of working and operating in, in quotes, unquote, the real world. Um, do you feel that that, that was a, uh, an important background for you? And, and, and how, how did that come about anyway? Why, why was it you one minute in the squat rack, so to speak, and then the next, you know, doing biopsies or, or whatever? Well, well, first, I think it's a, it's a luxury to have the, the background of someone who's actually been on the floor, so to speak. Um, and uh, I think it's helped me a lot in speaking and in, in explaining things simply because I, I know the terminology and the language used in the gym. So I don't have to, I know how to uh, simplify basically what, what I'm trying to say. But uh, uh, what was the second part of your question? Sorry. Well, just like what, what, how did you go from, from oh, yeah. the gym floor to the, to the bench top, so to speak? <laughs> That's perhaps a funny story. So I just finished, a, this was in the fourth year of my undergrad. I finished an exchange in the NCAA. I was working at uh, the University of Louisville. And I was working with a lady there. Now she's the director of uh, 
performance for the Sacramento Kings in the NBA. But Tina Murray and uh, her uncle was Brian Murray, uh, who was a who was a GM of the Ottawa Senators. And my my dream job was to be an SNC coach in the NHL. And I could feel that uh, those dreams starting to come to fruition there. And I went to go talk to uh, a prof of mine at the time. I was doing my undergrad thesis in foam rolling. Uh, and I, uh, it, that was Stu Phillips. And he said, well, you know, if, if they're going to offer you those jobs now, imagine what they're going to offer you when you have a PhD. And, that, and that's, the, that's, that's how it all started for me. So I, I got hooked. He said, yeah, you can do a, an accelerated PhD with me. Uh, what do you think? And I, I was, I was all in. So that, that's, it was, it was kind of just a one conversation. You know what? I might Amazing. as well stick around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course we've, you mentioned Stu Phillips. He's, we've, we've had him here uh, quite a few times. He's, uh, he's almost certainly listening. So hey, Stu. Um, and uh, uh, I, you know, th- th- this, this, this just brings me right into what we're going to talk about is, is protein. Um, I've done a couple of podcast lately um more to do with endurance training we talked a little bit offline about this uh, had dan Moore on recently mind-boggling uh conversation about protein and endurance for over an hour which yep. <laughs> always blows my mind that we can talk that long about these things but you know every now and then i do look at the statistics of um how many people are downloading these podcasts that i produce and overwhelmingly the most popular ones are the ones that have protein in the title it's it's just amazing you you, i'll talk to you know sort of a nobel prize winning scientist uh so to speak by way of example and that'll have only a few listeners uh relatively speaking and i could have a you know just someone uh, just 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 talk about protein and they're not particularly well known uh and it'll be the most popular podcast so why why before we really get into this like why is protein such an obsession for everyone particularly in the sports science sports nutrition and even in the lay area you know it's it's sort of the the protein drink the protein bar oil is what everyone gravitates to what's so magic about protein well well i think just nutrition in general everyone can have an opinion about that but you know we were we were talking about uh, Prof Neil Walsh before this, and yeah. you know, it's harder to have an opinion about exercise immunity than it is about whether or not I should have more carbohydrates or more protein or whatever it is. Uh, so I just I just think everyone has an opinion about it, um, and perhaps there is a lot of gray zone right now, especially. Uh, uh, I I just watched uh, the Game Changers. Oh no. <laughs> don't mention that i've I've Uh, avoided that in the last few podcasts and uh, we almost got into it in the previous podcast so i'm gonna i'm gonna have to edit that if we're not careful (laughs) well i I was listening to the to the debate on game changers so after that documentary they brought in james wilkes he's he's the guy that they follow throughout the documentary and they put him up against this other nutrition expert on joe rogan on joe rogan's podcast yeah. And uh, my buddy was watching it and he's flipping through, they're flipping through all these references and they're at, they actually referenced one of the, uh, the paper that we're going to talk about today on protein supplementation. And we did a little sub analysis on whey versus soy. Um, so I, I think my, my point is, is that, uh, you know, it's, it's a hot topic this in vegetarian versus uh, carnivore diets and things. So uh, I'm, not, I'm not surprised that you have a lot of listeners into it as well. Yeah, and it uh, look, it certainly is important. And we've explored, you know, in recent podcasts, we've looked at lots of different 
nutritional influences on uh, endurance. Um, we, we got into that specifically about protein with Dan Moore. We covered it in several podcasts I've done on ultra endurance um, with Ricardo Costa and uh, Nick Tiller. Nice. On yep. a separate podcast. And um, obviously, I've gotten into this stuff uh, quite deep with uh, Stu Phillips and Kevin Tipton, um, numerous ones about protein there. And we've, we've, you know, we've talked about the role that it has with body composition um, and uh, even all the, the sort of molecular biology side of things. It sounds like I'm just coming up with names here, but people like, you know, Keith Barr and Lee Breen and Oh, no. And um, yeah, no. I mean, just low, I'm missing people out now. Um, but <laughs> but um, Lee Hamilton, got to remember him, uh, one of my favorite past podcasts that was. So the, the reason why I'm mentioning this is they all relate to protein, obviously, in one form or another. And the area that is of particular uh, interest to people is is the sort of the magic that consuming protein will have on their muscle mass. And you, you only have to go to the gym. And I've certainly experienced this myself back in the old days when I was a PT, not understanding this stuff properly. You know, the, the, the anxiety that sets in when you realize that you've forgotten your protein shake um, after your workout or um, you go, sod it, I haven't, even got time. I haven't even got time for my workout, but I'm still going to have my protein shake. <laughs> you just believe it. And then you read through the magazine, you know, the, the, obviously the not peer-reviewed peer literature, although we'll talk about that too, because there's a, there's a lot of misleading science as well. Um, but you see a picture of a protein shake and you'll see a sort of a, a really, you know, maxed out guy just, you know, bursting with muscles, all with the inference that, that the protein is responsible for all of that. So because this is an area that you did your PhD work in and, um, and also the, there's a meta-analysis um that that i had in my mind as being what i really wanted to talk about but i think what we're going to do is sort of a bit of a blend of what you did your phd in uh and the meta-analyses which of course are you know they're, they're, they're related there um so let's let's just quickly start this off then so the the focus here is going to be more to do with protein supplementation and its um role or value uh, the evidence-based perspective of its value on resistance exercise training um, induced increases in muscle mass. That's, that's, what, that's where lots of people are really fascinated. And that's really what I want to get into. And when I was reading the, these parts of your, your PhD thesis and this meta-analysis, you know, it really just it spoke to me very loudly that there's a lot of mixed messages out there on, on this topic, a bit like the... Um, the imagery that I just pointed out with anxiety in the locker room when you don't have your protein shake. So let, let's just quickly um, delve into firstly, like why, why specifically did you choose to do your PhD on this topic? Um, and, and then the meta-analyses itself, you know, the, 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 were they related or uh, was it something you were just burning to do or just tell us a bit more about that? Uh, well, you know, I think what I wanted to know in my PhD was uh, how to best put on muscle size. And towards the end of my PhD, that turned into why do some people put on more muscle when they lift weights than others? And those are really two simple questions that uh, I, there's a lot of hours that went into those questions. And 
some of the factors that affect muscle hypertrophy might be endogenous, and that's where I'm at now. That's genetic, uh, proteomic, uh, protein synthesis, molecular biology, but there's also exogenous factors, things like how much weight you lift uh, when you exercise, how much volume do you do, you do uh, are you taking a protein supplement or not, et cetera, creatine, things like that. So I, uh, I kind of straddled that fence of endogenous and exogenous factors that may influence muscle hypertrophy. Yeah. And I'm really, that's great. And I'm really looking forward to exploring these areas because it strikes me that a lot of information on this topic is not so much that it's right or wrong. It just, it lacks context, which no one will be surprised to hear me say. <laughs> so it, a bit of contextualization is obviously required here, but it's, it's really a case of uh, maybe more of a, a chicken or the egg or, or maybe more accurately getting the cart before the horse type mm. conversation. Um, so let's, let's just do some background on here so that everyone's on the same page of understanding what it is that we're talking about and what you mean when you say certain things. And before I think we can get into this conversation, um, you know, uh, appropriately, let's, let's give a bit of background then. And, and this sort of, this is what we're about to get into, I think is more, more from what I just got from your PhD thesis that I think will underpin um, the next part of our conversation here. So, what you know, we're talking about muscle, uh, or specifically skeletal muscle mass. What, what what is the actual role of skeletal muscle mass and strength, uh, and human health? Human health's a big one, but uh, yeah, well, in Just loosely, yeah. generally in performance, uh, more muscle and more functional muscle allows you to jump higher, sprint faster, uh, run longer. Whatever, whatever it is that uh, you're looking for. In health, um, uh, we need our muscle for our independence uh, as we age. Uh, it's a primary, it's, it's the organ that we store the majority of our glucose in. Uh, so it's very important to maintain muscle mass to offset things like obesity and diabetes, as well as it's, um, it's a very metabolically active uh, tissue. So if we lose our muscle mass, we stop burning as many calories and then that may in increase obesity, diabetes, which are often comorbid with cardiovascular disease, uh, which is the number one killer in developed countries. So we need to understand skeletal muscle. And it's, 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 it's fascinating beyond just sort of performance and health because also it's that, it's that aspect to the body that, that somehow adds an additional level of character, if you like, to a human being. If they're, if they've got lots of muscle, then they're strong and powerful, and that might have some sort of social, you know, influence. And then there's the sort of the social sexual side of it where, you know, one way or the other, people either perceive themselves to be, and I'm thinking about people staring in the mirror, and or um, so in certain societies, certain areas, people that are, are better built, um, have more muscle mass, might be deemed to be more attractive to um the opposite sex or the same sex or whatever which way you want to take that but there is I love, um, I love that you just mentioned that i think that that is so it's so true and it's such a big part of our car, uh, of our culture and I'm, I'm reading this book right now about uh, evolutionary genetics and this is uh you know it talks a lot about the social cultural aspect of muscle and how our uh how uh, what we do when we seek mates how that's changed over time and 
yeah, the, the phenotype of big muscular is in right now. So I, it's, it's cool that uh, you mentioned that. Yeah. Well, we, yeah, we could also add beard. <laughs> <laughs> big muscles and big beard it induces sort of the viking-esque yeah, exactly, yeah. <clears throat> just club club your uh, target and drag them back to your cave um <laughs> but we won't go down that path so um so okay so there's only a certain number of ways we can actually increase this desirable muscle mass um i'm sure some people have more than just the several ways you know in mind but but let's just set set this straight then so how how does one increase muscle mass um and then maybe also go into of those methods which is maybe healthier or more ethical than the other perhaps yeah i think you're looking for there's two surefire ways to do it one would be to lift weights uh and the other would be to uh have some sort of endocrinological endocrinological boost which would be like testosterone and theta or something of the sorts um those are two surefire ways to do it yeah um so but what you didn't mention there was gulping back protein oh, yeah yeah well yeah I, I suppose if you just have heroic amounts of protein that may not put on a ton of muscle mass but it certainly does support uh the muscle mass that you would increase with resistance training yeah Sure. Yeah. And that, well, that's just preempting our major part of our conversation we'll get into. So, <laughs> so it, just give us then a um, bit of a 101 on, on muscle protein turnover. You know, what, 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 what actually happens there? If you could describe that for us, please. Yeah. Well, you, you've had some of the, the biggest names in this area on your podcast, so I, I should probably defer to them, but basically what it is, is, uh, the amount of muscle you have is regulated by how many proteins you synthesize and how many proteins you break down as a part of that muscle tissue. And that's called muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown. In general, if we're going to gain muscle, we synthesize more than we break down. Uh, and if we're, if we're losing muscle or if we're, we're bedridden or we're critically ill, uh, we break down a lot of our muscle because it has a lot of these amino acids that we can use for fuel. Uh, we break down more than we synthesize. Um, so our, our, we're not exactly snakes, but I think I like that analogy of we're always turning over. Um, we're always synthesizing, breaking down, synthesizing, breaking down. So that, that generally is muscle protein. And just to, you know, let's just clarify this a bit, because I think this is relevant to a person's day-to-day -day eating habits and whether or not they need any supplemental protein. I mean, the rate of turnover, what are we talking about here? Is it like bones? It's quite a long, slow process, or are we talking something much faster, more rapid? And, and how much variation is that either um, between exercising and non-exercising people, but also just between people, the whole, you know, inter and intra-individual variability concept? Wow. You know, I'm not, I'm not certain about the inter-individual differences in muscle protein synthesis. I think it's generally the same, but muscle as a whole uh, it's relatively slower turnover compared to perhaps your liver or, or your brain. There's a really neat study from Luke Van Loon's lab. Uh, Joy Smeets is the first author about brain turnover. Mm. It's, it's very fast. Um, but the, the thing about muscle that's interesting is we have so much of it. Um, about 50% of our body weight is our muscle. Um, so even though it is turning it over slower, it really is the primary organ that's using uh, glucose for that turnover and our amino acids for that turnover. 
And is there, on this conversation, do you feel that there is um, a, a sort of a direct relationship? I've got to be careful how I question this. So is there a direct relationship between the sort of the, the, the sort of acute turnover of muscle mass relative to the acute intake of dietary protein intake? So can you ask that again? Sorry. Yeah, I'm trying to, I, what I'm trying to really do is differentiate between um, intakes of, of protein, i.e. say meal to okay. meal, okay. Um, as opposed to um, over a long course of time, you know, the impact that that might have. Of course, you, you hear people talking about protein pulsing, you hear people mm -hmm. talking about or protein pacing as well. I've had Professor Paul Osiera on here talking about that. I'm just interested in the turnover of protein and how that might be related somewhat also to the intake of protein. Yeah, well, that, that's a huge, there's a ton of questions that could uh, be filtered in there, like protein mm. source, pro protein, yeah, protein spacing, um, protein timing, protein distribution. Uh, yeah, I, I think all of those have an acute effect on muscle protein synthesis, and they're actually generally well studied. Um, there seems to be uh, uh, certain amino acids that are relatively more anabolic or rate limiting. Um, so perhaps uh, protein sources that have those amino acids, and in this case, I'm thinking of leucine, may be more anabolic in the, in the short term. Um, there's something called the muscle full, attack, uh, full effect, which I think was dubbed by Phil Atherton. Uh, but it's generally that when you, if you were just flood your uh, muscle cells with amino acids, at some point, at about three hours, uh, we would the increase in muscle protein synthesis that would be happening would eventually fall off. So we, we can't just flood uh, our our muscle cells with amino acids. We we need this kind of pulsing on and off, on and off, on and off. And there's a neat study by uh, Jose Arreta uh, where he compared two big boluses, like two 40 gram boluses, to I think four 20 gram boluses to eight 10 gram boluses of protein. So he's basically comparing, you know, really small uh, boluses to a couple moderate ones to two big ones, like an intermittent fasting style-ish uh, uh, design. And uh, he found that the moderate doses, so the, it was separated by uh, three hours, uh, 20 grams every three hours was the most anabolic, at least uh, in terms of uh, stimulating muscle protein synthesis. So a long-winded answer there, but uh, yeah, I think that uh, distribution, timing, and source are all, are all very important, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I yes, I've discussed this with lots of people over the past, just that there's a, you know, some people will listen to a podcast uh, and they haven't necessarily listened to all the other ones, so I'm trying to pack in a few things <laughs> so oh, that people don't yeah. get lost because it's one of those things that people oversimplify their conversations on these sorts of topics. So we just need to make sure that, um, you know, we're, we're all on the same, same page there. So I'm, I'm sort of fascinated here by this relationship between protein consumption and its potential to impact muscle size and strength. But of course, it'd be very easy to overfocus on this conversation without looking at maybe the bigger picture of, of, of what is actually more important in terms of what are the conditions that are necessary for this to occur in the first place. Um, and by that, I mean, yes, you know, one feels anxious potentially by not having had the protein shake 
in the gym, but people aren't necessarily feeling anxious about having done any exercise, um, relatively speaking, or the right types of, of exercise. So maybe you could clarify what I'm talking about there. Well, this is, I think this is probably one of the most uh, hard hitting points of that meta-analysis. So uh, I know we're gonna get into it, but what we did is we, we found, uh, we, we worked with a library scientist to literally find every, every study that had ever published weightlifting, so resistance training, uh, with a protein supplement, a protein supplement, and so uh, the con- one of the conclusions of that paper was that uh, the weightlifting conferred most of the adaptation. In, in strength, there was like a nine percent increase if you supplement with protein, and uh, for after an average of thirteen weeks of lifting weights, the benefit you got from the protein supplement was like less than a pound compared to the two pounds or so that you might get from the actual uh, lifting, lifting of weights. So uh, you, simply put, you know, the, anab- the anabolism that you get from lifting weights and protein supplementation comes from the lifting weights part, not the protein supplementation. That's, that's the, uh, the gravy or the cherry on the cake, yeah. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's really interesting for, for several reasons, one of which is the I don't know what the number is, but it's a sort of a billion dollar market is the protein supplement thing. And for all the reasons I've just said, you know, people are obsessed with getting their supplemental protein in um, and are probably ensuring that they're consuming huge amounts of dietary protein in addition. Um, Let's just quickly differentiate then dietary protein from supplemental protein now i realize this is a bit of a difficult gray area because they're both technically dietary sources of protein but by that i mean the protein that someone's consuming for let's say breakfast lunch and and dinner or supper depending on the phraseology you use and or the you know knocking back of protein shakes or consuming protein bars what's the from your perspective having looked at all this and all of the literature and all the, the science and the evidence there what you know what what does the evidence actually tell us and and um how should we be interpreting that in terms of the real world well if the question is do you need like what's what's better whole 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 foods or protein supplements you know you can you can eat enough protein in your diet from whole foods such that you don't need a protein supplement and that's hands down and we we put a number to that that number is about 1.6 uh, grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per day. Um, mm. So as long as you're hitting that, then uh, I don't think the the protein supplement, or in fact, I know the protein supplementation uh, part is not really going to do all that much. So it's more about total protein intake throughout the day and less about did it come from uh, an egg versus did it come from a soy protein shake. Yeah, so it's, it's really what boils down to here is is whatever rows your boat, so to speak. It's the, you know, the if you like to eat uh, eggs, if you like fish, if you're vegan, vegetarian, you know, the, the, the basic approach to your total daily intake is going to take care of it for most people, which is not necessarily what people think is where I'm going with this. And there are perhaps some more important factors if your ultimate goal is to gain uh, or induce increases in in muscle mass there are 
um, a list of priorities, and there may not even be many things in that list of, of priorities. Do you want to just take us through through what that is? Well, something you said there kind of lit a light bulb in my head. We and when we looked at all the studies, the so this is uh, it included people between 18 to 80 years old. So it had eight over 1,800 people in it, mm. and the average protein intake in these people, the average protein intake was 1.4 grams per kilo per day, which was a lot, which is a lot. So uh, to your point, you know, I I think we are consuming a lot more protein than we think. Um, And then I'd add on that, you know, it's remarkable that protein supplementation was still effective because that seems to be quite a lot of protein. Uh, So, you know, I wouldn't expect if the number is 1.6, that we we really had to include a lot of studies to to ring out that effect. Um, sure. Yeah. Well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's if you look at the average person's diet. You know, they're almost certainly getting there anyway, or at least they're they're pretty close. They're so, a lot closer. They're a lot more than zero point eight, which is the RDA. So yeah, it yeah, it's impressive. Yeah. So okay. So the the obvious thing here and i go back to what i said about the cart before the horse then is is the influence and role of the 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 resistance exercise itself mm-hmm. um and whilst there's no doubt you know when we read your work and your papers and the others that 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 are out there it's quite clear that it's so it's, it's not a left leg or right leg conversation you still need both of them mm-hmm. but by far and above one is more important than the other which obviously is resistance exercise training can you just help us understand that situation um and just how significant that is i know you briefly referred to this earlier but but just quite how big is the difference in terms of the priority there well at minimum uh 75 percent of the change in muscle mass that you get when you lift weights is from the weightlifting. The, the extra benefit you get of having a higher versus lower protein intake might, it's like wringing out a wet cloth four times to steal an analogy from Stu. You know, the first time, a lot, lot of water. Second time, a bit of water. Third time, less water. The last, that fourth ring that you get, those few drips that you get, that's the benefit you get from protein supplementation. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's an important message and, and certainly one that uh, – Stu and I came around to by the end of my PhD that, yeah, you, something about, it's really interesting from a molecular biology perspective, but something about lifting weights makes your, your muscle cells very sensitive to amino acids or more sensitive to amino acids. And if you were to just sit there and have amino acids infused into your arm or just sit there and eat and eat and eat tons and tons of protein, uh, you, you, those amino acids wouldn't necessarily get shunted to your muscle and get big muscles. So it is key and it's it's worth highlighting before we get into the nitty-gritties of protein supplementation that uh the, the bread and butter is the weightlifting and that's definitely more important than whether or not you get two grams or one gram of protein per kilo per day so an area here that you know is interesting is not everyone is just trying to get big what they want to do is be muscular and lean so there's an angle there and or like when I talked about this with Dan Moore, for example, uh, and Nick Tiller, where, where it's, it's very much a, a case of, for example, endurance athletes where the exercise output 
you know, that is enormous. Yeah. Um, they don't feel that they need protein in, in anything like the same amount of levels because they haven't been so starstruck by protein. And for mm-hmm. different reasons, maybe um, they need to be more starstruck by, by protein. But when people are in an energy deficit, you know, even just a mild energy deficit, um, and potentially not just an energy deficit, but they're also in a, in a slight protein deficit relative to their, their daily, um, what they would average, maybe what someone would average, the numbers you've just described, for example. What happens there? So they do resistance exercise training. Does that then result in, in them not having any um, increases in muscle mass? Or is there a phenomenon there that makes this a little just a little bit more interesting yeah well if, if you were to exercise or lift weights let's say in a very fasted state in a caloric deficit uh, you wouldn't necessarily uh if you think of like a net protein balance so you have your synthesis and your breakdown you would still be breaking down more than you're synthesizing because you, you don't have the amino acid supply to make new proteins so uh yeah and that's if you extrapolate that out over a period of weeks, uh, if you're in a, a, especially a large caloric deficit, you're gonna start pulling amino acids from your muscle. So breaking down proteins in your muscle and using those amino acids or the carbon backbones at least uh, to, uh, for gluconeogenesis and for fuel uh, to do your exercise or whatever it may, whatever you're doing. Um, yeah, so, so I, I suppose that's, that's quite interesting how our body can compensate and use what we store in our, in our muscle in the form of amino acids for fuel. It's interesting for endurance athletes. That's also interesting in the clinical context of people who are on, on bed rest. Um, Absolutely. And also it makes me think of, you know, in, in the real world, people have different types of days. You know, the, the sort of the, the popular thing now is to talk about periodization and um in training and that has become something that we're now talking about in performance nutrition is you know uh, periodized nutrition plans Mm -hmm. so in that scenario you're going to end up with people that will be doing different types of conditioning potentially even some form of resistance training um where on one day they may be in an energy deficit uh, or a protein deficit but the next day they may be um, a wash with energy and, and protein. So that sort of day-to-day variation in, in sort of going in and out of energy deficits, um, but where there is still a resistance exercise training stimulus. Um, does that change anything you think or, or, or not so much? You know, and I think that's a, I think that's a really interesting uh, question. I'm not sure of, uh, I'm not sure of any research that I could lean on to answer that, but I, I would think that, if I'm lifting weights and I'm in a caloric deficit, if there's one macronutrient that I would want to take in, it would be amino acids or protein. Um, because again, if I'm, if I'm in a caloric deficit and I'm lifting weights, so I'm burning energy, I'm using glucose, uh, I wouldn't want that coming from the existing muscle that I have. So I'd want to flood myself with protein. Yeah. So you, yeah, you, what you're saying there is, 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 you don't want to start having this shift for want of being super basic of going sort of anabolic and catabolic with that muscle mass. You want to keep it in a constant state of adequacy. Is, is, that, is that more of what you're saying? 
Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Tom, Tom Longman has a paper. Um, I think it was 2016, but it's, it's, he, he gave one group of guys, they were lifting five times a week or five or six, actually I mean, five or six big caloric deficit. And he gave one group about 2.4 grams of protein per kilo per day, which is a lot of protein. Yeah. And it was all, it was all diet controlled. So they gave each guy every meal and every snack and then one group a little less. And they found that in a caloric deficit and they were doing resistance training, they're doing hit training. Uh, it was a, it was a legitimate training program. The group that was given more protein lost more fat mass and actually was able to gain a bit of muscle mass. But the group that wasn't given as much protein, I can't remember the numbers escaping me, but it's still quite a bit of protein. I think it was like 1.2 maybe. Um, but that group actually lost some of their muscle mass. And that's an important point. It's that clearly for that to happen, some of the proteins that were stored in the muscle were used for energy. And so we lost muscle. Um, that, that would be the study that I would lean on most uh, for that type of question. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's, just, it's just that not everyone is obsessed with uh, protein for reasons that we've already discussed. But also, there are people who are not just in the gym trying to get big. You know, there are athletes um, who resistance training is part of their training, but it's not specifically something that they're, you know, that they're, that they're, not, that they're not thinking about. I must get bigger. I must get stronger from a size of muscle mass perspective because, of course, there are issues with that with certain types of sports where excessive um, uh, muscle size can be a problem, and that leads me to think of, for example, athletes that are trying to make weight. For example, they still want to be strong, they still want to be powerful. You know, combat sports, for example, where one way or the other, they're still getting involved in um, resistance training. Um, but this is a scenario perhaps where they're at risk of gaining too much muscle mass. Dare I say anyone would be frightened uh, to have that. But there are certain people who are you know, right on that, that line with the weight that they want to be at and they're trying to control their muscle mass. Or for example, endurance athletes like, um, like I'm thinking of uh, some triathletes I've worked with who... Um, um, you know, although they're endurance athletes, they do pack on muscle rather easily mm. and they do engage in strength conditioning because they see that for obvious reasons to us as being beneficial to their sport. Um, and, and in their case, they may shy away from consuming protein. Um, so th the reason why I'm mentioning this is because there are other things at play here that can affect health. We know that protein is important for uh, bone health. Talked to Professor Craig Tell about that. Uh, and in the most recent podcast with Neil Walsh, we talked about protein and immune health, uh, or it's something that, um, you know, is an important factor there. So for you, there are some other areas here that people start to talk about that I think is interesting in this conversation. For example, hormones. And I did a whole podcast with Stu about the hormone hypothesis, which was a really fascinating conversation. But, you know, it, I think it's too simplistic if we just talk about resistance training or we just talk about intake of, of protein because there's various players um, in this game. And you've mentioned hormones, which is, uh, sorry, uh, genetics, which I think is uh, very fascinating. I don't know how much we actually know yet about that. But what about 
the sort of the role of hormones in in this and the in the way in which protein will interact with that what is there anything there that's of interest uh well yeah i did uh, i kind of followed up on a on dan west's work and it was basically looking at whether or not the post-exercise rise uh, in certain hormones like testosterone, growth hormone, IGF-1, for example, whether or not those drive hypertrophy. And consistent with all his work uh, and many others at this point now, I found that uh, we found that uh, the post-exercise rise in testosterone, let's just pick on, does not uh, relate to, and it certainly is not predictive of changes in muscle mass with weightlifting. And we've uh, we've gone at that a bunch of different angles. The we concede, and in, in no way would I say that, or anyone any of us say that testosterone isn't anabolic. But uh, if I were to, the, here, let's see if I can poke poke something from pull something from my thesis here, because I I did a bunch of calculations on uh, the comparison of post exercise rise in hormones versus if I were to take. Uh, something like a like an, a d-ball or something like that sure um, sure because I, uh, I don't think people realize just how significant the difference can be it, i'm i mean everyone's got to listen to that chat i had with with Stu. yeah um, he, would, he would be great at uh oh. um so here it is so the the post-exercise rise in circulating hormones uh, for testosterone, that would be around, or even free testosterone, but I'll pick on testosterone here, is about 500 nanograms per deciliter. That's four to tenfold lower than the resting concentrations in individuals receiving exogenous tea. For example, 600 milligrams of testosterone anthate would take you to a resting concentration of 3,000 nanograms per deciliter. Further, the post-exercise rise in circulating hormones is remarkably transient, about 15 to 60 minutes, and that's if detectable at all. For example, in women, it's not detectable. Thus, in a given week, so in one week of what is often about a 10-plus week cycle of exogenous testosterone, there's over a 1,000-fold difference in the systemic exposure to circulating hormones. So my, the point is, is that you know, it's, you're comparing apples to oranges there, and it is you know, the little blip that you get after exercise, one that's not even specific to resistance exercise. And if you were to, if you were to go do your, uh, your triathlon and then come back, your growth, your growth hormone, for example, would be through the roof. Um, so it's, it's not, it's not, it's for some reason it's in weightlifting culture, but that post-exercise rise is not a good indicator of whether or not you're going to put on muscle. Yeah. It's, it, it's fascinating, but you know, like this sort of, the back well the whole concept that we're trying to talk about here is is the assumptions that people make off the back of the reputation that these things have so the reputation of of the importance of protein is um you know is out i mean it's huge it's out there for you know we've talked about this but let's just quickly switch over to your meta-analyses then so we're talking about this the, this sort of massive reputation of that protein enjoys out there but you say here in your summary for example that there's no consensus on the efficacy of protein supplementation during prolonged resistant exercise training do you want to just explain what that really means um because it's a hell of a statement that isn't it yeah yeah it is and it's it was really surprising this study this meta-analysis was actually the last study 
or one of the last studies of my PhD. And I should mention that it was a big collaboration. Uh, we had, it was Brad Schoenfeld, Alan Aragon, uh, Michaela DeVries uh, was a big part of my PhD. She's on this uh, paper as well. Stu, Menno Hensman, Eric Helms, James Krieger, and, and a few undergrad students that I was working with, uh, Sean and Kevin. And um, so it, basically uh, what it was is that there were a bunch of uh, meta-analyses published in protein supplementation. Uh, the most, uh, uh, or the least conservative one is published by Naomi Cermak when she was working with Luke Van Loon, uh, and she found that protein supplementation was effective. But that was in 2012, and, and after that, there were a bunch of meta-analyses, perhaps some just in older people, some just in un untrained people, uh, some that just looked at uh, pea and soy, uh, some that just looked at whey, uh, and it, it really mud it, it muddied the water. And... In 2017, uh, I think Stu sent it to me. It was a there was a position statement written by really reputable scientists. It was uh, Paul Reed and Blake Rasmussen, and it was for the American College of Sports Medicine. And the, the title of this article was that there was it was protein supplementation to enhance adaptations to resistance exercise training, not supported by scientific evidence. So it was. Although at one point, and, and I'd, uh, I'd say that, that Naomi's meta-analysis was phenomenal in 2012, um, after that, it just seemed to they, they just get battered around. And, it, and in 2017, uh, the position statement from the American College of Sports Medicine was no, not supported. And so we just thought, what the heck, let's just do the most liberal assessment of this. Let's look at men, women, old, young, uh, whey, soy. Uh, six weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, I don't care. Let's look at every single paper that has included resistance training with protein supplementation. And that, that, was, the, that was how that paper was born. And, and what's great about that is that, that is a, that's a true reflection of the society and world that we live in, isn't it? Um, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, a, a common theme in my conversations with my, my guests on this podcast is that, you know, we, 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 we over-focus, we narrow things down too much, which of course is, is what science is, is all about. But when we want to, you know, look at the translational potential of that into the real world, um, we need to look at that in a different way. But it's very challenging to do that because you read about something in in that paper you know the conclusion that those scientists came up with and we go oh that must be it but not necessarily <laughs> for reasons you've just made clear so how on earth do we look at all that data well how did you look at all that data and and find a way of, of finding you know how did you find clarity in all that information what were the sort of things that you had what were the links you had to go to in order to do that uh, well, first is that I had a lot of help. So we, Laura Banfield is the library scientist and she's an author on the paper. She did the search for us. So she searched and it's not just, you know, maybe I, I step on my soapbox for a second here. A systematic review is not you going on PubMed and searching random keywords that you think will affect you or, or will relate to your soon to be systematic review. It, like she searched every single, uh, every single database, Embase, Medline, Sinal, Sport Discus, these are basically the umbrella uh, databases that a PubMed, for example, would fall under. PubMed is Medline. Um, so she did the systematic search for us. And then uh, I could take you through step by step here, but basically the idea 
is that uh, you try to find an objective way to compare one study. Perhaps one study is in a uh, hundred people and then another study is in only 10 people. How do I uh, correctly uh, combine the two? So how do I weight the study that has a hundred people uh, a bit more than how do I, than the group or the study that only had 10 people. And that in general is called a meta-analysis. And uh, we had a, we had pretty liberal inclusion criteria. Um, basically just had to be human published in English. Uh, it had to have an appropriate control group that did the same weightlifting. That was a, for some reason that was a big issue in a lot of these studies. Um, we were pretty tough on uh, studies that we included. For example, I, uh, it was kind of a funny moment, but Stu received some funding from the, the Dairy Council of Canada, and he did a study. It was uh, through one of his former PhD students on chocolate milk. And uh, I, I was doing my risk of bias assessment, and I'm like, well, that, that study has a, a ton of bias in it. So I actually excluded studies from Stuart Phillips in that, in that analysis. But anyway, we did, a, we did all, the, all the control checks or quality checks throughout the way, and we ended up with about 50 studies. Uh, that met our criteria for the uh, meta-analysis. Sorry, that's a long-winded answer, but I, I could go into uh, some detail about that. Well, they could, well, we'll have them read your, we'll have them read the paper so they can dive <laughs> deep into that. The, the reason why I'm mentioning it is because I think it's, it's, it's all very well listening to people talk about these things and people, you know, will say the evidence says this, you know, but there are variations on the quality of evidence that exists out there. Um, you've got your more mechanistic stuff, um, primary research, but that doesn't necessarily have direct translational potential for the real world. It might be done on animals and so on and so forth. So you have to factor all of that in. The other thing, of course, that you have to deal with is a lot of these studies don't just have, you know, um, different numbers of subjects and different study designs but also a lot of them have data that uh, you know is sort of derived using different methods i mean this is seriously complex stuff i mean what so so once you've done all of that and you've you've probably done your fair share of headbutting on the wall and various other things that, that <laughs> a lot goes, Excel spreadsheets, yeah. goes along with that what were the apart from there being no consensus on the efficacy of protein supplementation in this context what were the what were the main areas then that were like wow moments for you having looked at that 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 and how did that differentiate from you know these other studies that have been done these these sort of smaller reviews less comprehensive reviews what what were the sort of the real mind boggling areas for you um i i think i think we didn't have a consensus because this the other meta analyses which are all, all legitimate, um, they were just smaller. Um, so they either, they missed studies, uh, they included studies that I, uh, that I don't think were high quality, or maybe it's not me, uh, that wouldn't have passed the quality assessment that I did. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they, they were, and oftentimes they were in cohorts that uh, I wouldn't have chosen to do, for example, just older women or, or just young men. Um, and so I, I think, yeah, we just got, we got a little carried away in the details there. Um, and when you just look at a subpopulation, you're not getting, uh, you're, you're really limiting yourself to the number of studies you can include. So for example, a meta-analysis with seven studies, 500 people in low quality original trials 
is that just you're you're literally just muddying the water uh, to use that expression again you're, you're not yeah you're, you're not really uh the meta-analysis there's no point in doing a meta-analysis on small number of studies that aren't properly controlled so in trying to purify and clarify the water yeah, thanks. Uh, let, there's a, you know for me as a practitioner uh, and or as a consumer um, of um, or a potential consumer of protein shakes and, and so on you know the, 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 what are the things then that 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 you found that are going to be at the top of the list of considerations if we look at this information as tools in a toolbox that I always refer to mm. there's going to be a couple of go-to considerations that you would have determined having looked at, at this what what would the key findings then be uh the key f the really simply the key finding was that protein supplementation was effective uh yeah. protein supplementation augmented changes in strength and muscle mass um after what was an average of 13 weeks of resistance training so I think we I think we gave uh, legitimacy to those who are taking protein supplements. Yeah, as um, long as they're doing the resistance training. So that's exactly yeah yeah. Um, so that would be the the main one. The second one and the one that's gotten the most attention is we did this biphasic or breakpoint analyses, and it was uh, we found that as you increase your protein intake throughout the day. Uh, you increase the change in muscle mass or fat-free mass in particular um, with resistance training up into a point. And that point was 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per day. And then there was a confidence interval on that that went all the way up to 2.2. So either 1.6 or 2.2 at the upper end are, are numbers that have been in the, uh, um, in the IOC and ISSN um, uh, updates on protein supplementation. Um, but those are those are the two main ones. I think the most impressive finding was that uh, we we showed that in older adults, protein supplementation is less effective. And there's been a number of really nice uh, mechanistic studies and uh, look studies that looked at muscle protein synthesis and shown that older individuals are anabolically resistant. And we showed the same, except in a big meta meta analysis um, in what's called a bubble plot. Um, not to try to wring too much out of this um, one paper, but we also showed, um, uh, well, one of the other things we showed is that uh, the resistance exercise is far more potent than the protein supplementation. Yeah. And uh, that, um, I think that's a, a really heavy hitting takeaway for many. So those are, the, yeah. those are the, main, the main ones anyway. Yeah, no, thank you for that. I, I think it's really important. I mean, I, you know, we've talked about some of the, sort of mechanistic science behind this. I, I remember a, a conversation with Lee Breen about protein and aging, and that's mm -hmm. just yeah. absolutely fascinating. But when we, when we put this into the real world scenario of, for example, like what you found, just, you know, just how much protein are people generally eating anyway? Um, and maybe, you know, a, a bigger consideration there is that, well, they're not even doing resistance training. Um, or they're not doing the right kinds of resistance training, but clearly one way or the other protein is additive to that process. So I think it, it, you know, the big debate for people is, is how much is too much? Um, or rather than thinking how much is too much is how much is superfluous to need. But then of course, um, it depends on the conversation we're having, isn't it? Because 
if if all we're interested in is increasing muscle mass then that leads us down one sort of conversational pathway but if we're going to look at protein as having benefits beyond um helping to increase muscle mass um you know in support of resistance training where for example there might be an interest in compensating for you know uh, not eating uh, something else like say carbohydrates for example yeah. someone who's who is doing resistance training they're not particularly active beyond that they have a sedentary job mm-hmm. um, um you know and they are trying to balance their their daily energy intake their their one recommendation for them is to increase their protein beyond beyond that level um, do you feel that what you found here maybe increases the bar on that somewhat, or at least shows that, um, it, it, you know, having increased levels of, of protein intake for people that are engaging in resistance training, even if it's just twice a week, there's still significant value in that. Uh, I would say there's statistically significant value, but the value is pretty small. Yeah. Um, that would be my 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 main message there. But to your point of uh, you know not just in weightlifting, um, like Dan Dan Moore would have talked a ton about uh, endurance exercise, and he's been using this method, uh, the indicator amino acid uh, technique, and he can measure how much how much of how many how much of the amino acid that you're giving are actually being used somewhere in the body because he's measuring uh, how much of the isotope or how much of the carbon skeleton is breathed out and uh that that is that is really neat because it is true that you know i think uh muscles are a primary source of what we're how we're using amino acids specifically in an exercise context uh, but it isn't the only one um our gut and our, our immune system and um our brain as i was i recently read uh, is using quite a bit as well so an important consideration i agree absolutely well it seems that protein remains to be super exciting and interesting and clearly people are going to keep going down this path of learning more about protein and its relative values the protein industry obviously will keep pumping out protein related products mm-hmm. um i think that you know for me this is really interesting because it does help clarify the importance of resistance training and for um yeah. for people who are maybe using protein um, somehow to support their body composition, but in the absence of a great deal of resistance exercise training, may possibly need to rethink the you know the the role that that's playing. I mean, what 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 are your thoughts then on people that are well? The difference, some, something we haven't talked about enough yet, I think, is the potential difference um, in needs between people. We you've mentioned that. Um, you know, a, a certain number like 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight, for example, just to, to, to use that number, uh, mm-hmm. and up to 2 point, did you say 2.2? Yeah. Yeah. But what did you see in your work on this about that variation between people? Was there anything that, that stood out um, um, that would help us understand which end of the spectrum we're likely to be, or is it just completely random or is it a genetic thing or, you know, what, what are the reasons for that? You think? Uh, I think there are a number of really cool reasons that we're getting into now, genetic, um, perhaps microbiome related. Um, but a a sure thing that is a 
perhaps it's a limitation of that uh, that number is in is age. So had we had we also thrown in age as a covariate, um, there were really no studies in older individuals taking high protein intakes of two of beyond two grams per kilo per day. And I, I do wonder if we had a we had enough studies that I we could have done two separate graphs, a young one and an old one. I think the young would be closer to 1.6 and the old or older uh, would be closer to two. And uh, the confidence interval would have shrunk quite a bit. Yeah, you see, that's fascinating, isn't it? I, when I think of just people in my own family or mm -hmm. in my network, you know, the older folks, that they just don't go for protein and, you know, trying to... Uh, um, at least they don't try and increase their levels of, of, of protein. And you think just how important resistance training is for that generation. I think that this could be very interesting, particularly when you compare that to um, what you mentioned right at the beginning about the RDA being so much lower. Um, so to conclude this sort of whole topic then, I mean, you know, the, the, the RDA versus what you have found, that is a big gap. What do you think needs to happen there for, the RDA to, to go up? I mean, presumably a lot more, a lot more research. Is that required? Like what sort of things are going to be needed? Do you think? Uh, you know what? There's, this is particularly frustrating for me. And there's a, I work in epidemiology now. So I, I, uh, I work at the population health research Institute. There were three papers published in the Lancet uh, within the last two years. And these studies, um, they looked at food distribution and food intake, not just in developing countries or developed countries, sorry, not just in developed countries like Japan, the US, Canada, Europe. They also looked at Southeast Asia and in fact, there's 17 different countries they looked at over something like 400,000 people. And they found that it, it, the people who had less carb were eating less carbohydrates, more fats, and more protein were at less risk for cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality, including non-cardiovascular disease-related mortality, which would be cancer. And so, you know, I mean, those are published in 2017, 2018. Uh, the, the first author would be uh, Andrew Menti or Mashid um, Dagan, I think is their last name, but the senior author would be Salim Yusuf. Those are, those are published in the world's best journals. And so we need to I think just as a scientific community, we should stop sending so many mixed messages. Like it, it seems to be that, you know what, carbohydrates outside of an exercise performance context, um, there's, there's no such thing as an essential, essential carbohydrate. Mm. There's essential fatty acids, omega-3, omega-6, and there are essential amino acids. And those are the two macronutrients that are probably the ones we should be focusing on. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's a few podcasts right there, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, well, look, you know, look, we, my mission here was to sort of duck and weave around this topic because I've had so many conversations with people about protein over the years. I didn't want to just repeat stuff. Um, but this, this topic then that, that we've gotten into, you know, the, the sort of dietary protein supplementation and its potential benefit to augmenting uh changes in in muscle mass um as it relates to strength training can you sort of give us then just sort of for the end of this conversation a bit of a sort of a, a conclusion summary on this topic for us 
like a tweetable summary, but a bit bigger than a tweet. <laughs> well, I could I could give you something that I, I gave at the end of my uh, my PhD uh, oral presentation. That'd be awesome. It was yeah. uh, uh, an evidence based guide to muscle hypertrophy. Uh, lift weights with lots of effort, consume enough protein, and choose your parents wisely. Awesome. <laughs> you couldn't yeah, have. You you that, couldn't that would be my tweet. That's brilliant. It probably will fit on a tweet. Um, thank you so much, Rob, for your time on that and having a, uh, uh, this conversation. It's just absolutely fascinating um, topic indeed. I look forward to um, adding your various papers, um, the, the meta-analysis and a few others to the, to the show notes here so people can read you know, fully everything that we've, we've delved into. There were areas that that we just don't have time to talk about. Um, and also some of the related podcasts I've done with people uh, where we didn't touch on things because they've already been covered, so to speak. Um, if people want to uh, sort of follow your work more closely, uh, how do people find you? Where, you know, where, are you on Twitter? Or are you on uh, ResearchGate? How do you like to, to be found? Yeah. I'm, I think I'm pretty easy to find. I, I'm, I'm on ResearchGate, PubMed, Google Scholar. My Instagram's Rob W. Morton. My Twitter's Rob Morton 23. Um, I'm, I'm relatively active on, on all of them. And uh, my email is mortonrw at mcmaster.ca. That's M-O-R-T-O-N-R-W at mcmaster. That's mcmaster.ca. And I'm, I'm happy to respond to any uh, emails or anything that comes up <laughs> you might regret that rob yeah, i know i know there's I'm a lot of people listening. Yet, but, uh, <laughs> um no that's awesome i i think that's great you know it just adds to the body of, of knowledge out there and to hear your your voice and your ideas and thoughts and not just not just the you know reading words on paper is what makes this interesting but as i always say you know it's important to read the work as well not just to listen to to podcasts, uh, the, 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 the benefit they have together is greater than, than one perhaps. Um, well, that brings us to the end of this, this conversation. Um, uh, you can catch up on all of these podcasts just by going to the IOPN.com, T-H-E-I-O-P-N.com, where you can find access to uh, not just the podcast, but all of our educational things that we get up to at the Institute of Performance Nutrition. Um, you can also get access to this podcast specifically on its own podcast page, um, all the notes and shows and links to all the other podcasts at wedoscience.com. I, uh, of course, am Laura Mack, and I look forward to bringing another episode back to you all very soon.